we turn today to God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And we are going to take a look at this as a way to prepare ourselves for our series uh, this fall that will begin next week through the book of Philippians, the letter which the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Acts 16 tells us about a number of the events, specifically salvation coming into the lives of three specific people who would then be the foundation, the framework, the beginning of this church at Philippi that we read about and learn about later in the letter that Paul wrote to that church called Philippians. So it makes sense from that perspective to, as we ramp up into this Philippians series, to take a look at what Acts 16 teaches us. A little bit of background, maybe a little bit more than usual this morning, just to, again, help us get ourselves going in this Philippians area. One is Philippi was a Roman colonial city. It wasn't the head of that particular region, the capital city of the region, but it was a Roman colonial city, and it had received that status, that privileged status, that if you were standing in Philippi, you were basically equivalent to standing in Italy, It had received that status when it was the scene of the battle between Octavius and Mark Anthony on one side and Brutus and Cassius on the other, if you know anything about your ancient history. This is where that great battle took place, was at Philippi. And so it was awarded this status, of course, named also after uh, the father of Alexander the Great, uh, Philip. That's what Philippi is. And one commentator put it well in saying that Philippi had been granted by human governments and human people this high status of being this special city. But they were about to hear as Paul came and brought the gospel message about the privileged status, an eternal privileged status that we can have in Christ. So that's a little bit of background. I don't normally include this, but actually in your worship guide, you might want to take a look, even if you don't normally take uh, notes uh, at the notes section because there's a little map in there conveniently placed for you. As I read the first couple verses, we're going to start in verse 6. We're going to talk, there's a lot of names and places in those particular verses, and I just want you to see with that map, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, that Paul and Silas have began all the way to the eastern side of it on the right in Antioch and worked them their way across what we would call today the country of Turkey. They pick up Timothy along the way and then arrive at sort of the northwestern part of that map in this place called Philippi, just to give you some bearings on what's there. And one other thing that you're going to notice at verse 10 as we read, I'll give you a heads up, a shift in pronouns. The writer of Acts goes, Luke goes from speaking about what Paul did to speaking about what we did, to speaking about what he did with them, because Luke is joining in, apparently meets up with Paul and Timothy and Silas at this region of Philippi, and then is with them for some of their ministry ahead. So it's not a typo in your Bible. It actually tells us, hey, here's where Luke joined in personally to some of this rest of this story of the gospel spreading that we read about in Acts. So, I'll let you remain seated because it's a fairly long passage, but uh, I invite you to give your attention to God's Word, Acts chapter 16, 
verses 6 through 34. And they, Paul and Silas and Timothy, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went on to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. So setting sail from Troas, we made the direct voyage to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis and there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord... Come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Then presumably over the next number of days, continuing in verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore, tore the garments off of them, gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened with everyone's bonds unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
And he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do ask specifically, especially right now, a prayer for our time looking at, studying, examining the things of your word. We ask that you would open our eyes to see fresh things from your word for us today. And certainly, Lord, help us to prepare to understand the things that we'll be learning throughout this fall. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, the prequel movies are pretty big these days, aren't they? You know those movies that go back and tell some of the backstory for folks. I jotted down just a few of them. I guess technically the Star Wars series uh, could, could fall under that category going backstory. But Batman Begins, Superman Returns, X-Men Origins, there's two of those, the Wolverine one I know we've seen. Uh, Star Trek, the recent one, goes back to tell you about how Captain Kirk kind of became Captain Kirk. James Bond, Casino Royale, tells about the same for James Bond. And there's even some for different venues of film. When Harry Met Lloyd, Dumb and Dumber. Prequels are big, they're popular because we like to know how things got to be the way that they are. Or like to have the backstory so we can fill in and understand what's taking place now. Worked out for Hollywood with super agents and superheroes and even with a couple of goofballs. So maybe it'll work okay for us today as we think about what's coming up, what we're going to look ahead to in the fall in Philippians to look at Acts, see it as this chapter 16 as a sort of prequel, if you will, to all that's coming up, giving us some of the backstory about how this church began. And the most important reality of this prequel, if you will, is that salvation is coming into lives. That salvation that's described in this book, in this chapter, in Acts 16, if you look with me, verse 30 and 31, we just read it. He brings the prisoners out and he says to them, the jailer does, Sir, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Over in the book of Romans, we read similar verbiage. It's actually right before the passage that was shared earlier this morning. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9, tells us this, which is familiar to us who are perhaps familiar with the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8, tells us a similar message in referring to this salvation that we have, that it's by grace in Jesus, not through any of our works, so that none of us can boast that it only comes through the work of Christ. This salvation is breaking into the lives of three people in Acts 
16. And that salvation in Christ is going to be the centerpiece, the foundation, the basis for the whole church of Philippi that's going to develop around it. So too for us today, we should ask as a church family and on an individual level, what does it look like for salvation in Christ? It sounds simple, but we tend to miss the forest for the trees. What does it look like for salvation in Christ to be the centerpiece of all that we are and all that we're doing as a church? I'm uh, not necessarily normally one that listens to the Christian rock group, I guess, of sorts, Delirious, but I have recently been introduced to one of their songs that can't get out of my head, and it actually applies real directly to this passage today. I summarized for you the message of salvation in Romans that I mentioned, in Ephesians as well, and their song, My Glorious, singing about God's glory, they declare, all you ever do, referring to God, is change the old for new. We believe that God is bigger than the air we breathe, and the world will leave, and God will save the day, and all will say, He's my glorious. He's my glorious. This is the glory of God, this message of salvation. Come into our lives the foundation for the church at Philippi and for us as well. So today, if you want to uh, jot down, if you're someone who likes to take notes in the sermon notes section, you can put down this main idea, and we'll highlight just a few points related to it. There's a good bit to it, so follow along with me. Uh, God plants His church. I think this is the main idea. God plants His church by bringing salvation, by bringing salvation one by one, one by one. So we should spread the gospel. We should spread the gospel to whomever we encounter. God plants His church by bringing salvation one by one, so we should spread the gospel to whomever we encounter. We're going to take a look in just a minute at Lydia, at this slave servant girl, at of course, the Philippian jailer. But before we look at this coming of salvation for this area of Philippi through their perspective of receiving that salvation, I want to take a minute and let us look at it from those who are bringing that message. We all, if we're in Christ, are in both of those categories. We're those who have at some point received salvation, and we're also those called, certainly not, to the degree that the Apostle Paul was used, but called nevertheless to spread and to share this message of salvation. So let's look as we start off at some lessons to be learned from these verses, which I think are really powerful about spreading and sharing the gospel. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. I find these verses just fascinating if you pause and think about them with me. This is the Apostle Paul called by God for a specific purpose to go spread the message of Christ to the Gentiles. He is on a mission trip, 
if you will. He's on his second trip, so we already know he's not only on a mission trip, but we already know he's been used in previous trips to bring the gospel powerfully to these places. So he's called for it. He's on the journey. He's got experience with it and has been used before in this. And I just want you to see God's sovereign hand in the building up of his church and the spreading of salvation here. It tells us that they went through this region of Phrygia and Galatia, which you can see on your little map I enclosed for you is no small area, and were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word, the word of God. And the next sentence tells us they went on to this other region, Mysia, and they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Is that interesting? God's sovereign plan sometimes means he's opening doors, sometimes means that he's closing doors. And one of the things that this tells me is that we think about building a church or building our lives around salvation in Jesus, that the, the, the get-or-done mentality might work well for redneck comedy. The, the, the MIH, the make-it-happen philosophy might work well in some spheres of life. But these verses remind us that we ain't gonna get her done unless Jesus wants to open that door in our lives. In, in a collage of areas, but we're focusing this morning on this idea of salvation extending. So we're dependent completely upon the Lord to open doors. Now, uh, th- that's just part of it here when we think about uh, Paul. And, and, and let's process that for a minute. Think for a moment about some things in your life that you're trying to do that are for the Lord. Maybe it's uh, trying to in, in endeavor to pour in. You know, we're starting our fall season kind of here. Kids, a lot of us have, back into school, uh, back into sports. Uh, hopefully a lot of us are saying, I really want to invest in my children spiritually. I really want to see them changed and grow spiritually that's a good thing to do we hit barriers along the way frustrating when god closes some of those doors we don't see it proceeding or maybe trying to talk to somebody in your workplace or in your family about christ i know i have been there sitting there with intentionality to initiate a conversation like the ones we see in this chapter of acts and the lord just seems to Close that door. Uh, maybe it's just something as simple as inviting a, a new person to life group or to a men's and women's small group or to Sunday worship, and we feel like God is closing the door. What I want us to see here is simply that we shouldn't be terribly surprised. We shouldn't be knocked back so far on our heels. It happened for the Apostle Paul going on this mission trip that he was called to and having been on missions efforts before and used in those so certainly it might be true that god closes the doors what's interesting though equally about that is what does paul not do that we're prone to do when we see that closed door especially when sharing the gospel i see that closed door and i say well i guess i'll go back to my little world chris peters and kind of huddle up myself I tried. I stepped out. 
Paul doesn't do that. He says, okay, I guess this door is closed. Where's the next open one? Where can I go next? Where do you want me, Lord? This is kind of where I thought I was going. Where would you have for me to go? He's walking in step with the Lord or seeking to. Challenging for us. So we see that. God's sovereignty uh, reigning over the spread of salvation. We need to know that. That's a reality. It'll help us. It's also interesting, one other reality from Again, the perspective of Paul and Silas and Timothy going to share the gospel. Then we're going to look for a minute at those receiving the gospel. But if you look on over into verse 19 and following, it's not just the Lord that seems to want to prevent them at places from going to do this good thing. People in this town are not happy about them being here. This servant girl, of course, I think you understand the dynamics here. She was, uh, she was the gravy train for this family. Bringing in the bucks with her fortune telling. Guess what? Salvation comes in. Sometimes it cuts off the stream. Fit that in world into your prosperity gospel message. Cuts off the stream of money in this case. And they aren't happy. And then they get unhappy and the whole rest of the town gets up happy. And Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown into prison. There's resistance there from the people around them. But, of course, there's a flip side to that as well. How are they going to end up sitting and talking to this prison guard who clearly needs the gospel unless all that stuff happens? The only way it can happen is for all of that resistance to occur. And the end game is they get a two for one. (laughs) The servant girl comes to faith in Christ, we believe. I'll talk about that in a minute. And then the Philippian jailer does as well. How do we look at the places in our lives where the culture seems to be resistant to the gospel message or mocking it, or those around us, the popular kid at school or your boss or the figureheads in the media or society that uh, resist and oppose the gospel. Does those things set us back on our heels? Or do we say, like Paul and Silas, let's pray, let's sing some hymns, let's look and see if maybe even right here in prison the Lord might have something for us to do. So that's perspective, if you will, those bringing the gospel. And let's look at it for a minute from those receiving, and we'll go through these uh, quickly. Take a look with me, uh, starting in verse 13. At Lydia and her situation, you know, each one of these characters, of course, could be a whole sermon. But remember, we're just doing an overview to get ready for our series in Philippians. What do we see from the life of Lydia? I think the most interesting thing about her, she obviously seems to have some wealth. She's running her own business, it would appear. She gathers at this place of prayer and so forth. The apostles come along, Paul does, and share this message with her. But she's already some kind of believer in God. She's not totally off the ranch. She's already believes something about God, but clearly hasn't embraced salvation in Christ through Christ, faith in Him and understanding His justification, His payment for our sins. And so for her, she just hears the message and receives it. And it's a reminder for us, we saw this down in Peru on our mission trip there a few weeks ago when we did the medical clinic and praise God for all of the people that came through the clinic and we, we treated them, met all their medical needs before they 
had the opportunity to meet with the spiritual council time, so they, they were free to go. But so many of them came back, and we asked a lot of them the same questions because you're just meeting people for the first time at this random clinic in a different country, and we asked them, do you believe in God? Do you believe in heaven and hell? Do you believe you're going to heaven and why? Four relatively simple questions. And some of them clearly had no idea what we're talking about, but a lot of them did. They knew something. They said, yeah, we believe in God, and we believe he's this or that or has these characteristics. And yeah, we, I do actually believe in, in heaven, and I, I maybe even believe in hell. And I, I think maybe I'm going to heaven. And then we would ask them, why? What reason does God have to let you into his heaven? And that drew some puzzled looks and opened up some beautiful conversations about what Jesus does for us. That Jesus, through faith in him, allows us to have access to God, to be in heaven with him. These people knew something. They knew a little bit, but they needed that have really the most significant piece filled in. So they had a few pieces of that puzzle, and we're missing the center part of it. We helped fill it in for them. Who are the people around you and around me that you might be prone to kind of look past because they seem to have some kind of spiritual interest, but it's just a generic interest, and they need to hear about Jesus specifically. See that from the life of Lydia. You turn with me to the servant girl now. You read it along with me, so I think you see some of the things going on here. It's an interesting passage, though. Uh, to be honest with you, you look at these verses, and the question mark as to what is her spiritual status? It says she's had this demon cast out. It doesn't explicitly say she's come to faith in Christ. It kind of seems like she has because it's sandwiched in between these other two people who clearly have come to salvation in Christ. It, that seems to be the best way for us to understand it. So that's a, that's a little bit perplexing. At the very least, she's been greatly delivered of this demon. It's also interesting that Paul gets annoyed. You don't see too many of those things. He tells us the chief, chief, he's the chief of sinners, but he, he's getting annoyed here, and we don't know exactly how much to read of that, if there was a little bit of you know, what we would call frustration in there. Or if he's just bothered, what's the deal? Why is he bothered by this? Why does he holler and cast out this demon from this servant girl? Well, I think it's a matter of good word of mouth versus bad word of mouth. You know, you don't have the guy who's uh, 400 pounds uh, for the Weight Watchers meeting, 400 pounds overweight with, you know, Twinkies in every hand, come in and tell everybody, how they need to work on losing weight. It's bad, it's bad word of mouth. It's not going to help promote the cause. And the demon-possessed girl is not necessarily the one you want to have proclaiming what you're doing, even though what she says is true. So there's some good word of mouth and bad word of mouth. And Paul, I think, is just ready for some good word of mouth. The other thing is he probably realized, like Jesus, that as soon as everybody knows exactly what they're about, they're going to meet the kind of resistance that they did. Just like Jesus sometimes would tell his disciples, hey, don't, don't, don't tell anybody about this. You know, I, I know I healed this guy, rescued him, did an awesome thing right here. Just 
keep it under your hat for a little bit. Because he knew certain places, certain people, folks were going to come. Of course, Paul didn't have Jesus' all-knowing capacity, but he must have understood that, that this could happen. And they could find themselves in a situation that they weren't expecting. So all of that to say, as we think about folks around us, a direct application, maybe not the main one, but who, who around us is like this little servant girl? She just keeps following. Maybe it's that kid that shows up at the door and wants to hang out with our kids. Maybe it's uh, somebody around the neighborhood. They just can't seem to be able to tie their own shoes, and they just get on our, our last nerve. They're the last person we really want to track down and try to hang out with. At the very least, she's this pestering nuisance, and maybe the Lord is calling us to reach precisely that person, right? Third thing we see, a third person we see is this prison guard, this prison guard, and, and I'll have a couple of closing comments in a minute. I, I, I just can't miss this opportunity to share one of my favorite biblical insights that y'all are all going to be annoyed by, but I just got to do it. You know, some of us are uh, sort of medium stature, some of us kind of taller, some of us a little bit shorter in life. And so one of those Bible trivia things that, that you always think about is kind of who, who were the shortest people, who were the tallest people in the Bible? A lot of people think Zacchaeus, you know, short guy, a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. There's actually, though, you know, some might think he's the shortest guy in the Bible. There's actually the one shorter than him, Nehemiah. He was, he was pretty short. That Nehemiah was pretty short. There, there, there's actually one, though, that's a little bit shorter than that from the Old Testament, digging deep into the Old Testament, Bildad, the shoe height. Bildad the shoe height, he was, he was kind of a little guy. But the shortest guy, in case you want to know this from the Bible, the shortest guy is this Philippian jailer who managed to fall asleep on his watch. Managed to fall asleep on his watch. There you go. Let that sink in. What? What else do we see from the Philippian jailer? Philippian jailer is a guy on the serious side who's not met Jesus yet. He's not encountered this salvation that we've been talking about. That's the foundation that has to be the foundation of all that we are as a church. And here we are. He's just doing his job one night. He obviously knows he's going to have great consequences if these prisoners get out. An earthquake occurs while he's on his job, and he realizes it takes an earthquake, in the case of this guy, to realize he needs something. And so he actually goes to the apostles and initiates with them and says, what must I do to be saved? I know I need some hope. What must I do to be saved? Well, let's pull all of this together as we conclude. Very interesting to me, two big things from these verses. 
Just take a second and think about the pathway. Paul and Silas going on their journey, trying to get into these places to share the gospel. Doors close. Door opens in Philippi. Go along, which makes sense, to a place of prayer to try to share the gospel. Lydia comes to faith in Christ. Go, and they're walking along, and someone's pestering them, and they're just tired and frustrated by it, and so they cast that demon out. Her life is transformed. A bunch of people come and gather together. They're beaten. They're thrown into jail. Then in jail, God decides to display a miracle, and salvation comes to this Philippian jailer. I don't think that's how Paul drew it up when he left Antioch. What do you think? Maybe he gave up after a while, really drawn up much at all. He obviously had some kind of plan, but he knew that the Lord was going to take him different directions than he would think. And if those directions were intentional for God to use him in the lives of people around him that God wanted to save. Where are those situations around us? Or we're saying, I'm going, I'm going, I want to go this way, God. This is the way I want to go. And God's saying, got plenty of room to walk over here. Got people that I'm desiring for you to reach out to. What are those places for us? And then as we really prepare for next week, I want you to think about these three people. They're the start of the church at Philippi. You think we're an interesting bunch of folks. You look around the room a little bit on Sunday morning. You got the wealthy Lydia, who knew something about God already, so she's got her Bible knowledge down pat. She's got it locked down. You've got the servant girl who was demon-possessed and owned by some other people until just recently and now has been rescued. She's probably an interesting gal to talk to. And then you've got this Philippian jailer who was about to kill himself when he heard the gospel and heard about eternal life. That's how God builds his church. That's how salvation comes. That means for us, plenty of room for everybody in this church family. And it also means for us, and we shouldn't be surprised that some of us are going to be coming from here. Some of us are going to be coming from there. Some of us are just going to need a word that we came to salvation. Others of us had to have a demon cast out of us. Others of us, an earthquake had to occur for us to really see the gospel. That's how God builds his church. That's how he brings salvation. Salvation in Christ is the centerpiece, the foundation of all he's doing. I hope it's the centerpiece of all that we're experiencing and all that we would be as a church as well. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we do praise you and thank you for your word. And we thank you for these three lives that we've had a chance to see today because as we glimpse them and look at them, it draws our attention, first of all, Lord, to your work that you've done in our lives and however you've brought us to yourself or perhaps some here are in the process of being brought to you. And, Father, it draws our attention as well to the beauty of the way that you build your church by working 
in the lives of people around us. Sovereignly, Lord, not always how we expect. Lord, we ask that you would use us in that work. And we pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.